Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, the SEC has been having some issues with the idea of a Bitcoin ETF, and here to talk about that is our our, our own Eric Balchunas. He is a senior ETF strategist for us at Bloomberg Intelligence. Eric, tell us about the latest. What did the SEC uh, recently say? They put out a letter last night, and they had 31 questions, open-ended questions about that's how- it? Yeah, that's it, right? Um, in five sections. It reminded me of the end of Back to School. And they're like, we have one question, but it's 27 parts. And he spends all day answering it. Um, look, a lot of these questions are answered in the prospectuses. It's, it, they're asking things like, how will the NAV be calculated? Well, the prospectus does address that. I think really what's going on here, if you want to just kind of like be honest about it, the SEC... Break it down for us. Come I will. On, be honest. Roll I'm just going to be real right now. Go ahead. Go be real. The SEC, this is a hot issue. They realize there's investor demand for this. Big time, right? So they want to be sensitive to that, but at the same time, they're just not comfortable. So they want to show everybody that they have been very thoughtful about this. They're taking this very seriously. Here's what they're concerned with. They want to throw it all on the table. And I think that, but the thing is, a lot of these are already addressed in the prospectus. Some of them get really deep, like, how are you going to protect against the hack? Now, that is a question you will never, ever probably be able to answer 100% with security. So there's always going to be some unanswerability to some of these questions. So are you basically saying the SEC is uh, basically doing a CYA exercise with this list of questions saying to the public, look, guys, we're concerned. We've got yes. general concerns. Yes. And so we're not going to approve these things yet. We're yes. thinking about it. We don't know exactly why. We're not but we understand everyone wants to buy these things. We get it. We're, we're sensitive to that. But... Um, I was bearish uh, last night after I read it, but I talked to a few issuers, and bearish I don't know on the prospect on of the prospect of a Bitcoin, a Bitcoin ETF launching, say, in the next year or two. But I don't know. I think issuers are in there; they're going to work with them. I've heard people are like, "We are definitely going to address these." Because I was thinking, man, if I was an issuer and they just came out with with all this, I might just be like, "Oh, you know what? The heck with it. I'll just but try to launch." So much money at stake here. I know the the first one out gets uh, easily. It's a billion dollar product. I mean, easily could be a billion dollar product in a couple of days. So that is what makes this all so exciting, although exhausting for me, because there's a this is a race, and I'm telling you, every other week there's some major turn in this race. And then this week, we had the blockchain ETFs launch, which are a lot more easier to launch, right? These are tracking equities that are involved with blockchain technology. But even there, the SEC got a little nerve nervousness and made them take blockchain out of their name and use something more generic, um, like transformational data sharing. So there's a lot of concern at the SEC that they are <laughs> going to be looked at as being a little too liberal. Um, not, 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 not a catchy enough name for you. Yeah. I was going to say, boy, that just rolls off the tongue. Transformational. Listen, Pim, I got good news for you. The ticker is yeah. block. Well, but so th this is, that that my helps. Small brain. But yes. This is but this is yesterday. We had reality shares that, or, or earlier this yes. week um, on on our show, and he said he corrected me. He said actually that's no longer our name, and that was the reason why it was the SEC. There's his next gen economy, but would you think of bit? I don't know. Anyway, I call them the blockchain ETFs. The tickers speak to that. So they're doing well. They're all tr already both trading a lot, and they're off to good starts, especially for indie issuers. I've got to ask about this idea of turning everything into an exchange-traded fund. The, uh, one of the arguments for exchange-traded funds is you get daily liquidity. 
you can trade it like a stock. Oh, and by the way, it's not going to hit you with those tax, those onerous tax bills like a mutual fund, even if you don't sell the fund. I'm sorry, how does that connect with these kinds of offerings? Right. I would go back to the original ETF SPY. It really was put out there to be a physically backed version of a futures contract. Correct. So there is a trading element to ETFs and there always has been. And I would argue HYG, that's a Lisa's favorite ETF right, I know. the high yield. Yeah. Sure. Well, JNK might be your favorite, but it's a, it's a, it's a who knows? Junk, high yield. <laughs> I don't even need to talk. People can just fill in the blanks for <laughs> yeah, me. Go ahead, Eric. What else do I like? But these are predominantly, <laughs> these kind of things, Bitcoin, uh, marijuana, junk bonds, these are predominantly used by traders looking to get quick positions on those. You know, the retail investors or, 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 are when still- you say When you say quick positions, are you trying to say you have traders who are trying to make quick money, taking advantage of people no, who No, no, just know. quick access. But just to get what, in and out quickly. What per but it's got to be a buyer and a seller. Yeah. Well, be someone who's going to lose money, if someone's going to make money, who's well, going to be the loser? It, that's the way the bond and stock market work anyway. I mean, there's traders and uh, people trading those all the yeah, time, too. there are too. actually things behind those, Well, and supposedly. this is the key. Hold on a second. Well, Before they do, we yeah. They do, you know, an ETF, again, I always tell people that it is uh, it is a mutual fund. It holds the yeah. stocks in it with a custodian and the, or the bonds. All right. So, you know, here's the thing. I think this is the issue is you know, with, with junk bonds, with stocks, there is something that is a security that is backing these ETFs. With Bitcoin, I mean, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs have laid out issues with how do you um, act as a custodian of a Bitcoin? I mean, what is Bitcoin? How do you store it? Who's going to make sure that, you know, uh, that hackers aren't going to get in? I mean, we've, we recently had a story about how hacking uh, Bitcoin is a massive industry. I mean, these are some major issues. Major. And when you approve an ETF, you're basically saying it's ready for prime time. So that's what the SEC, this is, you know, middle America can then go to their brokerage account and buy this thing. That's what the SEC is concerned with. However, there's a product on the market, GBTC, which is an over-the-counter traded trust, trades at huge premiums. And I've heard some discount brokerages classifying that as an ETF. So I would somewhat use the alternative argument, which there's other products out there that are more dangerous at least with an ETF, you'd bring in the nation's richest market makers doing the tightest arbitrage. You'd bring in a lot of liquidity, and you'd get as close to the good, best possible deal. It's the best structure for something that is as archaic, or, or not archaic, but as uh, um, new as Bitcoin. I've seen it done with China A-shares. They had China A-share ETFs before the government even allowed A-shares. They had to use quota from people in Hong Kong. ETFs have this sort of history of like nudging their way into an area, maybe even before it's ready, and then you figure out later, oh, it's fine. But I would say Bitcoin is a special case. Or you case. find out it's not fine. Yeah. And look, at the end of the day, though, th these are investment vehicles. Investments, do go da they go down. But uh, the question on Bitcoin, though, is unlike GLD, where I guess you you're, you're feel secure that the gold bars are in a vault with guys with machine guns guarding it. Here, you're like, yeah, someone could hack it. What would happen? Um, although I will say there are ETNs in the world. ETNs have credit risk. Lehman had an ETN. People did not get their money back. So there are products. That's why I think Bitcoin, if I were out there, I would do it in ETN wrapper because people already go in knowing there's credit risk. So I think ETN might be a better vehicle for Bitcoin, but no one's launched one for whatever reason or why? filed for one. Why, why do you believe that to be so? I think right now, big banks are less willing to have anything on their balance sheet because of regulations. So they've scaled back on their ETNs. But if one of them would just step up and say, you know, this is actually a great opportunity for us. We're okay having this. 
uh, I think it could be a really big hit product. And if that gets liquidity and an ETF launches after, no one will care. They'll still use the ETN mostly. Okay, not to uh, change the subject too much, but you sit there reading the tea leaves of the ETF world. And I just want to get your sense. What should we be paying attention to? Are there any shifts in flows that are really notable that you think are representative of shifts in market sentiment? Yeah, two things I'll give you real quick is, one, I find people are hot about industrials and aerospace and, and defense. Who isn't? Yeah, this is the Trump trade. But I will say, though, those those ETFs kicked back in after tax reform. So I felt there was a little uh, kick to the Trump trade after tax reform. Uh, people thought it might not, have, might not have the legs it does, but it does, apparently. So XLI, ITA have seen a lot of inflows in the past couple of weeks. And another one, you're, again, back to your favorite topic, is uh, high-yield debt. We've seen this interesting shift into interest rate hedged ETFs. They haven't taken a lot, but it's like a swell out there. Could be a big wave soon. And that is HYGH. These are ETFs that basically take like the high yield debt or investment grade debt, and then they short treasury futures in order to have no rate risk. What you're going to find is they're starting to outperform HYG. So HYGH has outperformed HYG by a good degree since rates have quietly started rising over the last four months. And we've seen flows into this. This thing is a basically doubled size in the past couple of weeks. Watch for people rotating out of HYG into HYGH, out of LQD into LQDH. It reminds me of currency hedged ETFs a couple of years ago, where it says, I want this, but I don't want this. It's sort of a package trade. That's what these rate hedged ETFs do, and I think they could have some, uh, they could see some flows. Eric, uh, when you talk about that perhaps transition from, let's say, uh, HYG to HYGH in order to take advantage of that hedging capability, does that sale of HYG, doesn't that affect the value of the underlying asset? Right. So if people sell HYG and there's a lot of selling pressure, yes, uh, somebody will take the HYG and do a redemption. That would put selling pressure on the bond. So the ETF would, uh, if people were selling HYG, it would put selling pressure on the bonds ultimately. But again, that's probably going to happen in concert with people selling bonds. It's not like somebody yeah, but really wants to sell HYG. That, yeah, but if you're in a wrapper that says, oh, no, don't worry about it because we're going to hedge out the risk for you, uh, that might give you that false sense of security. Well, again, it still does ho own high-yield debt, right? And then it also is going to short treasure. In other words, it's not just saying we're going to do this and then we're going to do whatever with the money. It actually does it with the money. I'd almost equate this to the way a you, you know if an institution has a prime broker and you want to put that trade on, that's what they do. ETFs have democratized everything. And like you said, does everything need to be democratized? That's a big debate. But package trades, getting a currency hedge exposure or high yield debt exposure, that right. is ultimately what's happening here. We got to leave it there. I want to thank you very much, Eric Balchunas. He is our senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. <music> Well, the world of fashion has changed dramatically, uh, mainly in the way that it is being marketed and distributed. Here to talk about that is Rebecca and Uri Minkoff. Uh, they are co-founders of the uh, Rebecca Minkoff and Uri Minkoff brands, and they joined us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Thank you both for, for being with us. Uh, Rebecca, I want to start with you, and I want to ask you specifically about how you have changed your use of social media over the past few years to more directly target your customers and frankly bypass big advertisers? 
I think what's really key, and it's something, you know, started before social media, is it's always been about my conversation with the consumer. So social media has allowed us to continue to have a dialogue with her directly. We didn't have to have any middlemen. And so social media is that tool that we use, whether it's Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, to really just talk to her. And uh, you don't need to advertise to her because she's not looking for that anyway. She just wants an authentic connection. And if I can be that for her, then then she's happy and so am I. But have you actually cut back on more traditional means of advertising as you more directly connect with her? We've actually never had to do the traditional advertising route because we had that connection early on. So we didn't have to invest you know, hundreds of thousands of ad dollars in glossy magazines. I think it was about... I know you, you know me, and we're going to talk, and it's going to be authentic, and that's more real. Ori, I want to bring you in and just to talk about the actual business of fashion, because uh, in reading a recent issue of Women's Wear Daily, uh, there was an issue with one of your distribution and supply chain partners. And I thought it was interesting, the way you handled it was to go directly to Facebook and use that as a medium to communicate, obviously, not only with your other business partners, but really with your customer base. Yeah, you know, in this day and age, uh, community is so important, uh, and our customer base is is, is so important to us. Um, we moved to uh, a new warehouse, uh, third-party logistics warehouse, uh, right before the holiday season. We also moved to a new web platform, uh, really to optimize around long-term growth. Uh, and the demand for our product was so great that they, they just couldn't keep up with it during the holiday season. And so we had some, some shipping delays uh, because the expectations just were not there with, uh, it was just far exceeded expectations. Um, and so Not a bad problem to have. Not a, not a bad problem to have, but you know our community is so close to Rebecca and they're so embraceive of her and the brand. Um, and some of them felt disappointed, so it's important for Rebecca to go out and make a statement to them directly and to really sit there and answer their questions, and it's something that we'll be continuing to refine. Rebecca, I also want to ask you about the Women's March. Yes. I know you have an initiative where you are outfitting some of the leaders in the Women's March committee, and then... In photographs, you can click on the different things that they're wearing, and it shows you how much they are and how you can buy them. And I'm just wondering about uh, if this is the first sort of cause that you've associated yourself with, how you choose causes and how you do that while not alienating any of your customers who might not agree with your cause. This is definitely not the first time I've uh, been working with a cause. I think, you know, when we had our first see by wear in the streets on Green Street, there was a lot of social unrest at the time. A lot of bombings had just occurred. And I said, I can't just have a fashion show. You know, so we worked with Not On Our Watch. Uh, We had this incredible graffiti artist. Uh, do some art on on the back of these jackets, and the proceeds went to Not On Our Watch. And then uh, last February at our fashion show, we worked with um, Girl Rising, so empowering girls in different communities. Again, worked with an artist, and the proceeds went to these organizations. And um, my relationship with the Women's March actually started last year when they reached out. They said, we want a uniform. Is there any way, you know, it was like two days before the march, do you have any shoes or bags that could make us all look the same? And I said, hell Yes. Um, <laughs> You're like, absolutely, I do. So, <laughs> I'll empty my wardrobe. Uh, send someone to the warehouse. Um, and, you know, I was really proud that I was able to support them with something small uh, that, you know, made them feel really empowered that day. So, you know, this year in lieu of a fashion show, because I am due during Fashion Week with my third child, I said, how can I really do something that's impactful again? And I reached out to the organizers and said, I would love to profile, tell your stories. And for me, it's about female equality and empowerment. And if someone has an issue with that, then I don't frankly want them to be my customer. 
Well, I guess that the issue being that sometimes, uh, you know, it's increasingly taken a more political turn. Totally, totally. So perhaps the insinuation there is what people would object to, not necessarily women's empowerment. Totally. And um, we also made a significant donation uh, to support their book launch and the Women's March in general. Speak, if you can, about the influencers that exist online in the world of social media, because that is also changing the whole way in which buyers interact with you as the creative uh, element, because not necessarily to go to a runway show, for example, if you have the right influencers or people that are able to put up the photographs or their comments on Instagram or Facebook, have you found that that is better in many ways? You know, Ori and I started working with influencers in the very beginning. We had interventions, people telling us, you're working with C-list celebrities, you're going to ruin your brand with these people. And we really decided to be fearless and not listen to them. And I think it was about, again, how do you get these people that have great communities, great people that follow them and and have, a, again, a genuine connection. So I think we talk about the influencers that you know, convert to sales, the some that also just get you brand recognition, but it still has to be authentic at the end of the day. It's so powerful today, the relationship between, uh, you know, the influencers and their consumers and their followers and our relationship with them. Um, and that's how you build community in this new digital day and age. And those influencers don't necessarily have to be celebrities in a more traditional sense of the word, it's right? It's even so- better if they're not. Really? I, yeah, I think I think you know there's authenticity. This, there's this authenticity. There's this you know you, growing up you always had you know the person next door that looked great, right? Well now that person next door has millions of people following them and they're known for their style and their discovery and how they go through their life and people are reacting against the the glossy everything is perfect. They want to know you know what that person's life is like and their ups and their downs and these people are, are sharing them. So it's this live reality TV version of of really cool people. Uh, online and these communities leverage in the millions and so and even now we're seeing a trend even away from macro influencers towards micro influencers where you have people that have followings of five or ten thousand and their communities are so engaged that they'll literally follow them to the ends of the earth so we run campaigns and work with influencers you know macro micro all the time and 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 when we find an influencer that has an authentic connection to the brand an authentic community uh, we all just grow together. I love this idea of mini cults kind of propping up uh, on different social media pl- platforms. Um, Uri, we noticed that one of your bags has a sponsored icon next to it on Amazon, and it raises this question of how you use Amazon. Does that mean that you can pay them for better placement? Um, how has it kind of changed the way you go about things? So we do not sell uh, directly uh, to Amazon our bags. Um, uh, we did in the past, uh, and we, we decided uh, to not work with them uh, directly uh, simply because um, you know there was a lot of discounting and so forth, and it was important to us to keep the integrity uh, of respecting the full price window as the full price window. Um, so we opted out of that r- direct relationship. Uh, Amazon wait, wait, does. Just, just to yeah. be real clear, there. So, in other words, you were saying that they wanted you to discount your bag in order to give them part of the profit, or because they thought that it would be no in the past more successful. In the past, we had a wholesale retail relationship with them, I see. but obviously they could they could set their pricing. It's it's illegal in the U.S. to dictate pricing, um, and but we found that but you could choose not to sell to somebody. Um, and, and we found that we couldn't get them to respect our pricing windows. Um, and, and, and with that regard, we chose to not continue a business relationship with them for our bags. That being said, 
they have a large marketplace. So any third-party person can set up a store and go sell on that marketplace, whether they're an individual, they could do fulfilled by Amazon, and it can be marketed to prime members. So for the end consumer, it gets very confusing of whether there's an authentic relationship with the brand or whether someone bought a bag somewhere and is frankly reselling it. So whatever you're, you're buying there of current goods is, is mostly through you know, a reseller doing it rather than us having a direct connection with Amazon today. Rebecca, uh, you are uh, ahead of the curve in so many ways, and it seems as though you're at least three years early when it comes to virtual reality. You know, virtual (laughs) reality is sort of the big buzzword right now, or uh, artificial intelligence and enhanced reality and so on. But going back to September of 2015, you were offering virtual reality headsets so that people could actually see some of your shows using their iPhone. I think it's important. Um, Warren and I like to take risks in this space, and um, because of his technology background, he likes to take even larger risks uh, and feels confident doing so. And I think it, any risk that he proposed by any chance that you have shot I was down? Just thinking that. I've tried that to. Was, times. I've it, tried it, to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there were a couple, and I had one or two that backfired. <laughs> What'd you learn from it? Details. You know, I think I think it's important to understand who your partners are. Obviously, we're not a technology company, so it's it's really vetting the partners and can they deliver on time and can they support you. And what we found is that there are some amazing startups um, and you get this one-on-one attention or sometimes there's very large corporations and they have internal support. So we figured out what works. Um, I think, you know, one time... So t- tell people, what give people a hint so they don't have to go through the same pain and agony. A hint in terms of... Of what, what to avoid. What to avoid. You know, I think one time... Always listen to I, your sister. Sometimes listen to your sister. <laughs> no. As um, someone with an older brother. Um, no, I think I think one time we, we decided to encourage, um, you know, a live feed of sorts uh, during a live presentation. And, and, and sometimes when you do that, uh, you, get, you get some people that have... Um, ulterior purposes or motives and, and threw up some inappropriate content during a live experience. So my sister suggested, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this. And I was like, no, I got this. And I, I didn't have it. Um, but fortunately, everything else has has worked out. Uh, I think with the virtual reality, as you said, though, it's fascinating because I think whether it's three or five years from now, you'll be sitting in your apartment or you'll be sitting in a city that doesn't have you know, a Bergdorf Goodman or a Rebecca Minkoff store. And you'll feel like, you're live walking through there. Um, well, and, and and we think that's an experience of the future and we just wanted to start playing with it. So this is, this raises a really key question. Is brick and mortar dead? It's definitely not dead. I think it's just changing and it's changing very quickly. I think if you're gonna get at someone to get out of their pajamas and get up off the couch, what are you going to give them in a brick and mortar store? Wow, you're making us sound so lazy. <laughs> if you're going to get well, someone how, how to get off the couch. Can, can we just talk in that context? Can we just talk money for for a second? Because the cost of commercial real estate uh, is no joke, and if you're running a retail operation, it is a major cost. Uh, have you seen changes in the in the price that the landlords are looking to charge you? We're seeing more favorable rates. Um, yeah much more favorable rates with landlords and they're willing to also test stuff out now. So I think for us it's about, we have fireside chats, we have community events, we have Forbes book club. So we're constantly doing things to get people together off their phones in the store. And if you don't buy anything that night, it's totally fine. We just want you to connect and come away learning something. I I think what we're seeing is that, you know, it isn't, it isn't all it's when we create community and we create events, yes, there's the transaction in the store, but a lot of those people are then creating content 
and that content lives online, lives on mobile, lives in apps, and then you're seeing a spike in online sales, right? It's it's the FOMO, it's the fear of missing out. It's we had this amazing experience with Rebecca uh, and a, a female leader, and all of a sudden it's the people that weren't there that kind of want to be there, and we're seeing those sales start to spike as a result of these micro events that we do. So brick and mortar isn't dead, but that brick and mortar better be pretty darn cool to get people And it out. might be less expensive. And it might be less expensive. It might be more temporary. It might be outfitted in different ways. Fascinating conversation. Thank you both so much for being with us. And congratulations on your soon-to-be addition, Rebecca. Uh, Rebecca Minkoff and Uri Minkoff, co-founders uh, of the Rebecca Minkoff and the Uri Minkoff line, which is the men's line. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Tim Fox and Lisa Abramowitz on Bloomberg Radio. There was a legal question that emerged after Steve Bannon's testimony in front of Congress recently, where he invoked executive privilege for not talking about some of his uh, experiences with President Trump. Here to talk about that is Noah Feldman, Felix Frankfurter, professor of law at Harvard University. He's also a Bloomberg View columnist, and he comes to us from Boston. Noah, thank you so much uh, for being with us. You know, there just if we want to back up here. There is a perception that some of the claims being used by the Trump administration are sort of on the fringes of law. And certainly Steve Bannon's claim of executive privilege uh, covering the time before President Trump even became president that protected him and his conversations uh, sort of goes over the line. You wrote a column about this. Can you explain why it may not? Sure. The basic idea of executive privilege is that the president should be able to talk to his senior most advisors in a way that won't subsequently be revealed to the world. And I think most of us agree that that's in general a good principle, and it has some basis in the Constitution insofar as the president has powers, including his foreign affairs powers, that he's supposed to exercise uh, in his own terms. The question is, when the president is not yet the president, should he be able to take advantage of this privilege. And if you think of it solely in terms of the fact that he is president when he exercises the privilege, then the answer is no, because there's only one president at a time, and during the transition, Barack Obama was president. But if you think of it in terms of the job that the president actually needs to do, that job begins after he's elected and before he's inaugurated. He has to choose his most senior advisors. He has to talk to them. He gets briefed by officials from the pre-existing administration. There's plenty there that we would not want the world to necessarily be able to hear. So if you see it purely in functional terms, there may be some reason to extend the privilege cautiously to the transition. Noah, uh, I wonder if you could describe what is the sort of modus operandi here of having uh, Bannon uh, testify or indeed uh, depose, let's say, by uh, Robert Mueller in the investigation? Because isn't this really just about what action happened? It's not about who said what to whom. It's about what actually happened. That's true. We probably, though, want to divide a public hearing in front of Congress from a private conversation with an official of the Department of Justice. And in fact, the courts have treated those differently. Um, when it comes to a conversation with Mueller, if Mueller issues a subpoena, then there's good, solid Supreme Court precedent going all the way back to the Nixon Watergate tapes case, which says that any interest the president has in confidentiality is going to be overridden by the need of the Department of Justice and of the courts, ultimately, to get the facts in a criminal investigation. And that conversation is going to be inevitably about whether laws were broken, and that's going to trump. 
On the other hand, a congressional inquiry can go a lot further because Congress is not merely investigating whether there was wrongdoing, but also what happened. You know, how was foreign policy made? What was said and, and who was speaking? And unlike a, a lawyer who's asking questions under conditions of a criminal case, a congressperson can ask almost anything in the course of a uh, an investigation in the course of a, of, a, of a hearing. And their interest is in politics, not only in, in who broke the law. And that could potentially be, be further reaching. And there's a different legal regime governing it, because that's about a conflict between Congress and the president rather than between the judiciary and the president. Well, no, maybe then you can offer your thoughts, because uh, you've written a variety of books. The most recent of one is The Three Lives of James Madison, Genius, Partisan, and President. And at what point does all of this become such inside baseball that, uh, you know, investors look at it and go, all right, so we'll let the legal system run its course, but that's not really going to affect what happens in terms of Washington, because at least right now, nothing's happening, and we can't even get a budget. Well, look, I totally agree that there does seem to be an extraordinary degree of conflict going on, and that's the luckily the job of the politicians to sort out, and I think the markets do generally leave that to the politicians. Here, we really should clearly distinguish two things. One is the criminal investigation of the president and his associates, which is ongoing. Mueller will engage in the most aggressive, lawful, ethical investigation that, that he can engage in, and it's important to understand that that will include being able to question Bannon about anything that Bannon may have seen or heard that would cross the line into illegal conduct, and no claim of executor privilege is going to defend uh, the executive branch or Bannon or President Trump against that. Separately, there's the question of the struggle, the the 225-year struggle between Congress and the president over who gets to keep what secret. And there, I think you're right to see this as kind of inside baseball wrangling, with the presidency trying to say as little as possible and Congress trying to find out as much as possible. And in fact, our system expects that to be worked out by negotiations. Unfortunately, in our current era, negotiation between the two sides is harder than it's, than it's ever been, but that's nevertheless the way our system is set up. Congress and the president are supposed to work this out amongst themselves. You know, there's a lot of uh, talk right now about, you know, well, there's bias on both sides. There's bias on the part of Mueller and his team. There's bias on the part of the FBI. Uh, and then people saying that uh, that these investigations need to go on because uh, President Trump uh, has engaged in some behavior or may have that is problematic. I'm just wondering, from a legal perspective, does the partisan bickering has it sort of reached in and muddied the legal waters yet? Have there been any moves made that undermine the legal integrity going on here? Not yet. I would say that right now, within the legal community broadly, and I'm talking about lawyers, judges to some degree, um, when they speak off the record, um, legal experts, the general perception very strongly is that Mueller and his team are seasoned, experienced prosecutors who are as objective as human beings are able to be. I think there's a strong belief that if there's nothing to be shown in the investigation, Mueller and his team will say there's nothing to be shown, that if there are crimes, they will reveal them, and whatever their nature is, they will, they will pursue them. I think the political screen is seen as attempting to shape and affect the process of that investigation. That has not yet happened. I think that, of course, that's a possibility, but it remains not the case uh, to this moment. Right. I think, right. you know, we got, yeah. unfortunately, we got to leave it there. We got to run. Noah Feldman is the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law at Harvard University and a Bloomberg View columnist. He can be followed on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Tim Fox and Lisa Abramowitz on Bloomberg Radio. 
Bloomberg Markets brought to you by Build America Mutual. BAM has insured more than $40 billion of municipal bonds for essential public projects across the U.S. Their high AA credit rating from S&P helps infrastructure, infrastructure dollars go further. Visit buildamerica.com. BAM. Well, right now we are hearing a lot of comparisons drawn between President Trump of the U.S. and President uh, Xi Jinping of China. And that will only get ramped up next week as we uh, have the Davos World Economic Forum uh, annual shindig. And here to talk about really some of the comparisons and perhaps the, uh, the, the misimpressions or the false impressions that some people are getting is Elizabeth Economy. She's CV star, senior fellow and director for Asia studies uh, for the Council of Foreign Relations, and she joins us now. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being with us. I wanted to touch base with you because there is this impression that President Xi Jinping of China is kind of taking that nation to the forefront of global domination and managing global affairs and, frankly, besting the U.S. in some ways, as President Trump sort of takes more of a protectionist stance. Do you think that people are getting the wrong impression? Uh, I do, and and thanks for having me. Um, I think it is certainly true that President Trump has taken a step back uh, from the traditional role of the United States as global leader. There's no doubt about it. We've seen him, you know, withdraw from the proposed Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, take a step back, uh, certainly on climate change, on various uh, United Nations initiatives, and obviously in terms of uh, migration uh, and immigration issues. Um, But that is not to say that simply because the United States is somewhat in retreat, that China is uh, ready to assume the mantle of global leadership. Uh, I think Xi Jinping has certainly... Uh, made his interest uh, in uh, taking on that role clear. But when you actually look at what China is doing, uh, it becomes clear that, first of all, China is not uh, a a leader or a defender of globalization, as uh, Xi Jinping asserted last year in Davos, uh, but also really has not stepped up to the plate to lead on uh, any number of uh, global issues, uh, from the refugee crisis to climate change um, to, you know, sort of the openness uh, of its markets. So I think uh, it bears uh, us looking uh, hard at the facts on the ground to understand uh, the reality of China's actions as opposed to uh, the rhetoric of Xi Jinping and a lot of media hype, frankly, that has surrounded uh, Xi Jinping's leadership of China. Your forthcoming book is entitled The Third Revolution, Xi Jinping and the New Chinese State. Can you tell us about this new Chinese state and from an investor perspective, what should we take away about what you describe as the contradictory nature of reform under the Chinese president? Certainly. So, I mean, over the past 30 years, um, you know, there's been an understanding, uh, I think, broadly, both within China and certainly in the international community, that as China is developing, its markets are going to continue to open, its political system is going to continue to liberalize and to reform. Uh, But if we look at uh, the past five years uh, under Xi Jinping's leadership, he's really turned those kinds of assumptions uh, on their collective heads. (laughs) And so what we've seen uh, in China under 
under uh, Xi is really, uh, you know, a return to the strongman leadership, a centralization of authority under Xi Jinping's uh, personal uh, leadership. Uh, so you no longer have the kind of collective leadership uh, that you have. You see an increasing penetration of the Communist Party uh, into society and into the economy. Uh, for example, uh, you know, the party committees wanting to make investment decisions for state-owned enterprises or for even joint ventures that are done with multinationals. I think most recently we saw uh, that the Communist Party has said they're going to take a stake in China's largest technology companies like Alibaba and Tencent. Um, you know, this is not uh, the direction in which we thought the, the Chinese government was going to, uh, to move. Uh, so we've seen a strengthening of the state-owned enterprises uh, under Xi Jinping. And a lot of people thought that it wasn't going to move this way, right? If they look back to 2013 and the third plenum of the 18th Party Congress, when a lot of people here in the United States said, wow, look at this document. It talks a lot about the market being a decisive force. That was true. But what they missed was that the state was going to remain in command of the economy. And certainly we've seen Xi Jinping, you know, dramatically uh, restrict uh, the outward uh, flow of capital uh, over the past year, uh, right? Putting a, right. you know, reining in a lot of overseas investment. So a lot of changes that move in the other direction, you know, as opposed to liberalization. Well, but but when, when it comes to just investors and, and the Chinese markets, I mean, we just saw that GDP reading for 2017. And, and you know, a lot of people might say that those numbers are, are totally fudged and very difficult to really glean any any truth from. But they showed the first acceleration and, and the most meaningful acceleration since 2010 in the Chinese uh, economic growth outlook. I mean, is this a bad thing, especially as the economy does open up at least to banks? I mean, uh, having having a, a larger presence there, foreign banks having a larger presence in China. I mean, as an investor, isn't it, you know, they're still managing it? Uh, well, I would say this. I, first of all, um, I think it's, it's right to be um, cautious about Chinese numbers, and everybody knows this and everybody says this. Um, but you just have to look at the most recent statements from you know, Tianjin, one of China's most productive, uh, largest economic regions, where they said that they inflated their uh, growth uh, in 2016 by a third, uh, or what just came out from Inner Mongolia, you know, a heavy uh, industrial uh, uh, center for China, uh, where they said that their estimates for 2016 were 40%. Uh, over what they actually were, just to say, let's let's not get overly excited over the 6.9% that we've seen this year, because we don't really know the reality. We won't really know the reality for at least another year. Um, having said that, you know, China continues to grow, and it's part of Xi Jinping's pledge uh, that he's going to double uh, per capita GDP between 2010 and 2020. And that requires that between 2016 and 2020, uh, that GDP uh, grow on an average of 6.5%. So whatever is actually happening in the Chinese economy, uh, you're going to see numbers that are going to make sure that, that GDP per capita is doubled by 2020. And as far as what it means uh, for investors uh, in China, uh, I would only point to um, both European Chamber of Commerce and American Chamber of Commerce reports over the past several years that talk about the increasing difficulty of doing business in China these days. Uh, and while you're right that uh, there was a recent opening uh, for banks uh, that came about after the Trump-Xi uh, meeting, um, it, in fact, what I've 
understood uh, is that this is a little bit too little too late, right? That there's not that much room at this point uh, for foreign banks to, to take on a, you know, a bigger share of the Chinese market because the Chinese have protected it for so long that, you know, Chinese banks now basically command uh, the, the banking system. So, you know, I think that's a, a challenge that many American companies are going to face, that the United States is going to face uh, as it continues to press China to open up more sectors of its economy, that in fact China is going to wait until it really commands those sectors and then say, sure, we welcome you in. Of course, you're not going to be able to compete, but have at it. Thank you very much for being with us. Elizabeth Economy, CV Star Senior Fellow and Director for Asia Studies at the Council of Foreign Relations. She can be followed on Twitter at Liz Economy. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.